Well, good morning, friends. Um, my name is Mark, if we haven't met, and um, we're going to read the Bible together now. Um, this morning we're reading from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 37. Uh, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You might want to jump on your up. I would encourage you to follow along with me. It's a long passage. At least for me, it was a little bit complicated. Um, I'm sure Bruce will make sense of it for us. Um, so it's Mark chapter 13. If you're following on the Church Bibles, it's page 1017. 1017. Mark 13, 1 to 37. And this is God's Word. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds. 
from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as it twigs, get ten- gets tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Thank you, Mark. Glad you're confident I can explain it. Given the uh, complexities of the passage, I think prayer is called for. But it is an important passage, so I am praying that God will speak to us. Father, we do thank you for all of your word, including parts like this that are slightly more obscure for us as modern readers. And so guide me to bring clarity to all of our hearts and minds as to what you're saying to us through it. And help us to be faithful servants who are ready and waiting for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start with a question. I wonder how important sleep is to you. Now, I know in the animal world, um, our creatures love to sleep, and I think dogs do it very well. Um, They just have a kind of attitude, I don't care where I am, I'm just going to fall asleep. Uh, But sleep is very important. Um, And I got through eight o'clock, we've actually got a professor of sleep who comes at eight, and I was slightly conscious of what I was saying at eight o'clock, because he's done his PhD, he's a respiratory professor who specialises in sleep. Um, But here's four things about sleep that uh, give you the value of it. And I'm sure it all rings true, it assists our mental health uh, in great ways, having a good night's sleep prevents depression, Uh, anxiety. Uh, It'll give you greater mental focus during the day. Uh, Thirdly, it'll also give you more energy when you're awake. I'm sure we're all aware of the feeling of a good night's sleep. We can get on with the day well. And fourthly, it'll help our brain functioning, which is an interesting thing, that as you sleep well, your brain will function better. So sleep is super important, but there's two problems with sleep. Um, The first is some people struggle to fall asleep and uh, or they'll wake up in the night having fallen asleep and can't get back to sleep. And I know that we've got people in the congregation like that. Uh, I've got someone very close to me like that. And um, that's just a reality. I'm the opposite. I will sleep all through the night. And uh, that's a great thing for me. Uh, but I know for others, it is a challenge. Uh, but others can't help falling asleep or nodding off when they shouldn't. And uh, you've probably seen people in various poses and positions Uh, situations where they've fallen asleep and you think, man, they must be tired. Um, And that's just how life works sometimes. It just hits you. And I can well remember 20 years ago um, in my previous ministry, 
Um, I'd been asked by one of the staff members to take a visiting speaker's couple out. They were speaking on marriage and they were mad keen fishermen and women. And my staff colleague said, Bruce, can you take them out fishing? I said, oh, okay, it's like working day and I not, don't normally go out during the day uh, when I'm working. Got up very early and that night I had to go and visit and I had a very busy day and I went out to visit some new people and I had to explain the Christian faith to them and I had two people from church with me who were wanting to learn how to explain the Christian faith and I'm very embarrassed to let you know, um, I'm trying to explain the Christian faith to them and I'm falling asleep. And I remember saying, God loves you. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> and my church members trying to wake me up. And I went, I think I need to go home. And I seriously just feel completely asleep in the person's lounge room. It's, one of the, it's the most embarrassing thing I've ever done as a minister. I'm reliving it right now. <laughs> And we come, I raise this because um, we come to a very important passage. And I think the temptation will be to doze off uh, because you think, oh, it's too difficult. And I do want you to try and have your game brain on and concentrate and stay awake. Um, let me just say, I do have a sympathy and empathy for those who fall asleep during sermons. I've done it myself on numbers of occasions. Um, and so I do understand it can happen. But more importantly, this passage is a wake-up call for us to not fall asleep in our faith. And I'm going to come to that at the end. But let's think about this chapter that's before us. Um, it's an interesting chapter in Mark's Gospel. The language of Jesus, as you've just heard, becomes what I'd say is increasingly, increasingly elusive. Uh, there's an opaqueness to it, not really a clarity. It's marked by Old Testament quotes and the language at points has an apocalyptic feel and apocalyptic language speaks of the end of the world and there are absolutely overtones in this passage that are apocalyptic. I don't think it's completely apocalyptic in terms of its genre, uh, but it definitely has parts of it that are apocalyptic in nature. And it's also mixed with what I call political prophecy. And so the material is not that familiar for us today as modern readers, in a way that it would have been a lot more familiar for those who were listening in the first century, particularly the disciples, because the illusions, the genre, the uh, the predictions were part and parcel of the environment that they lived in. And so we've got to do a bit extra work here and kind of be alert to work that out. So I've got two parts to the message today in terms of what I want to go through in Mark 13. And I'd love you to get your Bibles out because it will really help if you've got them open, devices or paper ones that are under the seats and the pages are there for you. I do want to spend five or so, maybe eight minutes, just how do you actually read a passage like this? Uh, just to kind of get us all on the same page from what I'm going to say, because it is an important question to think, how do you read your Bible and how do you get meaning out of this ancient text, particularly on days like today? And then secondly, and the bulk of it is, what actually is being spoken of here? Um, 
what's he referring to? And I'm going to go through step by step uh, six things that I think he's referring to. But firstly, how do you understand Mark 13? How do you interpret it? And I've got five keys for you. Uh, The first is the genre. Uh, This is not poetry like the Psalms. Um, It's not uh, historical narrative in the sense of having Mark tell us about Jesus healing the paralytic. Uh, this is sort of predictive, prophetic, apocalyptic type words. And so there's colourful and arresting language about climatic events, impending judgment, um, and it was far more common this style back in the first century. Secondly, the biblical context. Um, To understand this, you need to have, in a sense, some working knowledge of the Old Testament. I'm going to bring us up to speed on kind of the key passages, uh, particularly the book of Daniel and the book of Isaiah, uh, which Jesus is strongly alluding to and directly quoting through the speech. But it's worth mentioning, um, sometimes people read this passage and they will literally think of the book of Revelation to interpret Mark. But the book of Revelation has not been written at this point, And so it should not be the way you interpret the book. What you need to interpret it via is the Old Testament prophets who spoke of things to come that Jesus is picking up. The book of Revelation is great, uh, but its particular focus is yet to come on view in any significant way in the New Testament. And so we can't read it back in. Thirdly, the opening statement will help us get a feel for what Jesus is saying. So let me start with Mark 13. We're in the last week of Jesus' ministry before he's about to go and die. He's gone to the temple. One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. He's probably in the outer courts and they're leaving or just on the way out. And you can see the disciple is just amazed and it would have been an incredible building. Be like standing in front of, say, the Eiffel Tower. What a magnificent building. And Jesus gives him this very abrupt reply. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It's quite probable that many others that day heard that and that is one of the charges that was against him at his trial, as we'll see in Mark 14. But what he's predicting here is that the temple is going to be thrown down. An important question to ask at this point is, what was the temple and why was it so significant and so why was the destruction of it so significant? Because it is picked up in the trial as being a very significant thing when Jesus is on trial before the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Well, the temple represented the rule of God. When Israel had their temple, they felt we've got our God because he's with us. And their very strong belief was, and this is the way God operated, was that he dwelt in the temple. And the temple was the place of his presence as well as the way you accessed relationship with him. Because you had the sacrificial system going on to enable the forgiveness of sins so that the people of God could be in right standing. And so the temple was at the very heart of their religion and it symbolised to them, we have a God who's in control. And Jesus shockingly says, actually, it's about to be thrown down. 
And I think the disciples would have just been stunned. And there's just silence on their lips and they walk out. Now they probably cross the valley and they go up to the Mount of Olives. And the four in the inner sanctum then ask two important questions. Let's read from verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately. And you can see they come up to him. And I can imagine there's a kind of stunned silence around them. They're still thinking about what he said. Can you tell us, Jesus, uh, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? And so the question is, okay, when's the temple actually going to get destroyed? And how will we know when that's about to take place? These two questions control what we need to understand comes subsequently. And there's also a key statement within Jesus, if I can say, discourse. And it's at verse 30, if you want to look ahead. And it gives you a timestamp for these things taking place. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And so the reality was, you've got a prediction, and it's going to happen in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. It will be within the generation of disciples who were probably in their 20s. So they're the five things to help us see how you interpret this chapter. Uh, You've got the immediate context in terms of uh, the Old Testament and you've got what is being said uh, to set up the dialogue between Jesus. But what's been spoken of? Uh, There's six movements in it that I can see. Now, it's worth noting, um, I will have... There's other Bible commentators who will see things differently. And and so there's differences within the Christian community. And let me say, it's not going to be salvation-changing for any of us, Okay. But this is how I read it and numbers of others do read it. There's an old order is passing away is what Jesus is saying. Something terrible is about to happen within Israel and then the king will then ascend to the throne. And this news is going to go to the ends of the earth prior to the king returning to rule. So what you need to do is be vigilant and ready and not asleep. There you go. We can all go home now. (laughs) There's chapter 13. Let's just go through those six things. Uh, The old order of Israel is passing away. Now... King Charles, as we know, has just ascended to the throne recently. I think it was uh, just under 12 months ago he became King Charles, in an official sense. But something more significant took place with the death of the beloved Queen Elizabeth. It wasn't just a changing over within the monarchy... As you read the responses to her death, you realise there's an age that is passing and a new age is dawning. And the thing that, and it's got nothing to do with Charles per se and anything he may have done or not done, it's really the reality, I think, of the modern world we're in and the British Empire and the Commonwealth is now being discussed. And that age of the Commonwealth is changing. As countries who have, I think, respectfully waited for the Queen to die are now asking questions, do we still want to be part of this Commonwealth given the history of, if I can say, British colonisation? 
And those discussions are very current. There's a change of age that's taking place, not just of monarch. And what we see here in this chapter is a change of age. There's an old order that Jesus is saying, with the destruction of the temple, this old age is going and a new age is dawning. And so when Jesus says these words, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. He's saying the temple is not just going to be destroyed. Temple worship is coming to an end. The land as the place where God dwells is coming to an end. The people of God known as Israel is coming to an end. The whole system of what we call the Old Testament is actually under judgment. And it's about to be destroyed. And a new age is coming. It's why in the Bible we talk about the old covenant and we talk about the new covenant that's come with the Lord Jesus. There is an old age in terms of the way God's people operated. There is a new era that came with the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 5 he says these words, don't be deceived about this. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. And so as the events unfold in the days, weeks, years ahead, there will be people who come and deceive the disciples, and that's absolutely what took place. Uh, there were uprisings, there were changes of leadership in terms of the Roman rule. And so what he was saying to the disciples, what though uh, there's going to be an end to the temple and the era associated with it. You are not to be, if I can say, put off by this. In verses 9 to 10, he says you're going to be opposed and persecuted. And so Jesus was warning his disciples that with the destruction of the temple would come an un, a level of unprecedented upheaval, persecution and opposition to them and to his cause. But as he says in verse 10, but the gospel needs to go out to all the world. And it's important to note that's exactly what the first few decades of the early church records in the book of Acts. As the disciples went out with the gospel to the ends of the world, nothing could stop the spread of the gospel, but there was great opposition to it and turmoil in the world of their day. That's the first thing, an age is passing. The old order is passing away. But secondly, something terrible will soon take place. And you've got these intriguing words in verse 14. I've got them on the screen there. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go back or into the house to take anything out. Let no one in the fields go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that it will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. And those key words are in verse 14. And when he says, let the reader understand, I think it's tipping its hat to the fact he's quoting here from the Old Testament. And what is directly being quoted here is Daniel 9, 27, which if you've read Daniel... There is an apocalyptic section, which is the back end, which has uh, very vivid pictures, dreams, images. And as a part of that, you have this prediction. 
And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And Jesus is saying, this is about to be fulfilled. Which leads me to the third point. Something terrible will take place soon. The temple will be destroyed. He then quotes from Isaiah. So he's quoted from Daniel. Now it's Isaiah. It's Isaiah 13.10 and 34.4 for those taking notes. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The sun, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now these words in Isaiah speak of God judging the nations. And it's a time of darkness. It's a time, in a sense, when the judgment is so strong, the stars fall out of the sky is kind of the poetic language that's being used of this dark and dreadful day. What is chilling for, if I can say, the Israelites is Jesus is saying, actually, these words apply to God's people. Judgment is falling on Israel. And it's in the context of something dreadful an abomination standing, uh, those words, that causes desolation. And friends, that's exactly what took place in AD 70. Uh, The Romans came and entered the most holy place of Israel, the temple. And it was an abomination and they destroyed it. And so in April of AD 70, just three days before the most holy Jewish festival of Passover, I'm sure they knew what they were doing, the Roman army began their sacking of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And four months later in August it was complete and the abomination that causes desolation had been done and they'd done its worst to Israel. And I take it it was all part of the judgment of God on his own people Israel for the way that they had failed to recognise the time of his coming in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. I go back and read Luke 19.44, I'm quoting directly from there. And Jesus predicted that basically they would be encircled. And he said, it is a time of judgement, because you have not recognised the time of God's coming to you. And he was speaking in the third person about their lack of recognition for him. And here in Mark 13, he is saying, this is going to happen. Then we read these intriguing words. And I take it what is being described is the king ascending to his throne. At verse 26, it says, at that time... So in other words, in this period, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, I think the natural way we, in the 21st century, read this is we think, is he talking about the coming, the return of the Lord Jesus, his second coming? And people have typically done that in interpreting this passage. But it's worth saying, the second coming has never been mentioned to this point, And more importantly, this verse, verse 26, is a direct quote of Daniel 7, verse 14. And Daniel 7, verse 14, speaks of a son of man figure who is coming, but the where he's coming to is he's going up. And he is ascending to the throne. And he's receiving authority from the Ancient of Days. And so Daniel 7 is a vision 
that there is a day coming when the Son of Man will ascend to the throne and receive authority from the Ancient of Days, and he will sit and rule. What's Jesus talking about when he quotes that? It's actually his ascension. That he is predicting he will ascend to the throne and receive authority. Let me ask a question. When the early church went out and preached the gospel, what was the central message? Let me tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't that they stood and announced that Jesus died for people's sins. As true as that is, and it is referred to in parts. Now, the central message was, uh, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead, and he is now in heaven. And that's what they announced, that the king is seated on the throne. Acts 3, and one day we'll come back. Acts 17, yes, he's been appointed as judge. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. The king has ascended to his throne, which leads to the activity that we're involved. The news of it will go out to the ends of the earth. Already in verse 10, he has said the gospel must go to the world. Now in verse 27, he says, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heavens. Now the word angels in the original language is the Greek word angelos or angelos. And it simply means a messenger. And it could be a heavenly messenger or an earthly messenger. I think both are referred to here. And probably a more helpful way of rendering this verse is he will send his messengers and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, and to the ends of the heavens. And what are they doing? They are going out to the world as messengers that the king is on the throne. The Son of Man has ascended. Which sounds exactly what, like what Jesus did when he commissioned those first disciples. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Go and be my witnesses in Judea, Jumeria, Sudera, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. Then he finishes with these words. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it's near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Which leads me to point F. Prior to this king returning to rule. And so if he's saying, I'm going to ascend to the throne and that news will go out to the ends of the earth... One day I'll come back. And so I think there is a reference to his return, but if I can say it's more oblique and opaque, but I think it's what he's referring to here in verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So can I just encourage you, do not listen to people who say they know when Jesus is coming back. Uh, be wary of people who try and read into historical events uh, it's typically often with Russia, for reasons I don't quite understand, but anyway. Um, and they'll try and predict 
these things are going to happen. Jesus says about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But be on guard, be alert, because you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away, he leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. And is that not now what we are now living in? That the master is on the throne, he has left us the task to take the gospel to the world. We've got our assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch and we are to be watching and waiting as we take the gospel to the world. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. Little jab in the side to the Apostle Peter, what's about to happen. But what he's saying is the master's going to come back. And I take it this is an oblique reference to the return of the Lord Jesus, which we hear more about in latter parts of the New Testament. And friends, he is coming back. And so what he says is, be vigilant and ready. Because as he says in verse 36, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Mark 13 is this prediction and this description of how the old order is changing. A new era of God's work in the world is about to commence. And we know from other parts of Scripture there is now a new way of meeting with God. It's through His Son, the Lord Jesus. It is not bound by temple, by geography. It is where the news and message of Jesus goes. Does the knowledge of Him prosper? And we are called to take this to the ends of the world. And what He calls for us to do is to be vigilant and ready and to not fall asleep. Many of you know my, da- my father died in a car crash. And one of the chilling experiences, realities of my life is I've twice fallen asleep at the wheel. As a 20-year-old, having had way too many parties, then travelled to play sport, and I was playing at Newcastle, living on the central coast, had been down in Sydney came home at the end of uh, the second grade men's baseball match for the uh, Newcastle Baseball League when I was living on the Central Coast. And I almost got home and then fell asleep. I was travelling in a back road, thankfully, because on the verge it was gravel. And as the car went onto the gravel, it woke me up. And thankfully I wasn't going too fast. But fast forward 20 years... And this time I'm on the freeway. It was the October long weekend on the Monday afternoon. We had gone to stay with some people, I can still remember it. And I was coming home. And I knew I was tired. And you have that sense of your eyes wanting to close, but you are just fighting it trying to stay awake. And I looked around and everyone was asleep in the car. And then I could see a sign saying, rest station coming, one kilometre. I think I made 500 metres and I fell asleep. I was probably doing 100 kilometres an hour. It was the freeway. 
And I was desperate to stay awake, but I literally was just tired and fell asleep. Thankfully, they have those speed bumps on the sides of the lanes. And as the car went over them, veering off into the paddock, my wife woke up, Kathy, and she yelled at me. It's the best yell I've ever had from my wife in my life. <laughs> and I was talking about it with her this morning and she can remember it. I tell you what, it is a very rude shock. When I think about it, I feel sick. And I tell you that story because Jesus says that if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. And friends, I am sure there are people here who are asleep spiritually in the light. And whatever you make of the details, and I know some may have slightly different takes on the way things work, and, and that's totally fine. What is central to this is that we are called to be vigilant serving him in these last days. Because one day he will return. And what we must be doing is be doing exactly what he says here. Be vigilant in serving him. Do not let him find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone. He says it to us. Watch. And friends, if you are asleep in the light, if you are completely distracted in your Christian faith and oblivious to where you're heading, can you wake up, please? And realise the day is coming when you will have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give account for your life. Don't be like those in 1 Corinthians 13 who have built their life on just rubble and escape as one through the flames, it says. I pray that you are ready when your time comes because you have been faithful in all of your life in your service of him. And he says to you, well done, good and faithful service. The distractions of this world will lull us to sleep. Wake up if that is you and live and walk and serve in the light. Let's have a moment to pray and be quiet. And if this passage is a wake-up call for you, I call you to give your life back to the Lord Jesus afresh this day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words, complex, difficult as they may be, but we do hear you speaking to us, that we might be people who walk in the light, awake, 
vigilant, ready, waiting, serving, knowing that you, Lord Jesus, are on the throne. May we serve you faithfully every day. And for those who are asleep, Lord, wake them from their slumber. May they be people who wake up and just rededicate their lives to you and the service of the King. In Jesus' name, amen.